Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. You're listening to part two of episode 108, Duped, so make sure you started with part one, and now we'll continue from there. Okay, so Claudia turns on the machine, and Micah is looking at Claudia like, what now? And Claudia goes, say something. And Micah thinks, Micah thinks for a minute and goes, okay, Artie, when I get out of here, I am hugging her and points at Claudia and kicking your ass. And <laughs> Lena, Lena and Claudia are basically convinced at this point. Yeah, totally Micah. Yeah, which enrages Artie. Because I think they're being convinced by her is what makes him do what he does next, which is shut off the machine and say, she's never getting out of here. Because whatever his past experience was that was clearly very negative, it led... And you know what's interesting is sort of a confirmation bias where... Claudia believes it's Micah. So she says this funny thing, I'm going to hug her and kick you. Um, That's like, all right, yep. Claudia thinks she's right. Artie, though, is like, all right, yep, I'm right. It's going to say something that sounds really convincing. And the look on his face is so funny because he turns to Lena and Claudia with an I told you so face. And they're like, "We we, we think it's Micah. What are you thinking, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then commercial. Yep, we go out on a box. Boop, boop, boop. (laughs) And then we're back for Act 4. We are still in the Warehouse 13 office. It's a little bit later. Lena and Artie are going over files. Artie says a lot of really interesting things really quickly. He says, Lewis Carroll wasn't ever writing books, but chronicling... Alice's descent into sociopathic madness, which is a term to unpack in itself. I don't even think sociopathy is a thing anymore. I think they call it antisocial personality disorder. They do. And, yeah. And it's not, it's also, like, not something that technically makes you, like, an evil person. Um, I know that a lot of people who watch Warehouse 13 might also find themselves watching a show called Person of Interest and will find a much-beloved character who has, uh, or who who's, deals with antisocial personality disorder, which is a really interesting thing. So shout-out to those fans, because I know there's crossover. And I think that's really interesting, because I know some stuff, not the way you know stuff, probably, about Lewis Carroll, but I do know some stuff about Lewis Carroll. And I know that he kept diaries for a very long time in his life, and... There are certain parts of his life during which several pages are missing, like have been ripped out, and no one knows what's there, and it's like a subject of debate, but I'm not a scholar of that era, so I have no more information about that. But then he takes a break for like at least a year, but I think it's like five years of writing journals, and when he comes back, his voice is completely different. Like, instead of all this one tone of wonderment, it's like sort of sad and depressed and writing about loss and... So I thought that was all very interesting and sort of fits in kind of well with the idea that, oh, he was chronicling this thing and then the warehouse swooped in and then all this other terrible stuff happened and he was left a changed man. Yes, and I like that there is, as we've talked about in previous episodes, there is room in history for uncertainty and for allowing these sort of supernatural possibilities. Um, And... There are 
really open to interpretation ideas like that. And then there are also ideas that scholars of the period discuss. So I think it would be a good time to introduce our artifact expert for today. Um, so today's artifact expert is Brittany Carlson from the University of California, Riverside. She is a PhD student in English with an emphasis in Victorian studies and the history of math. She earned her BS in mathematics and English at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. Her essay about Lewis Carroll's work, which was titled A Latent Element of Alice's Agency in Wonderland, won the 2016 award for the History of Mathematics Special Interest Group of the Mathematical Association of America. So uh, Brittany's perspective that we'll include in clips today is very much about Charles Dodgson being a mathematician. And the fun thing is that because she's my colleague, we watched the episode together and she was able to comment on specific plot points and ideas. Um, yes, yeah, so her perspective on the descent into sociopathic madness was that... The, basically, the descent into her madness was that descent into non-Euclidean geometry because... It's just not something Lewis Carroll was ever going to go for. He, he, he highly critiqued it. He did not want to believe it. Even after there was solid evidence supporting it, he just didn't want to believe that that's, that that was the reality of the world, even though he could not actually see it and deal with it physically. There was no physical or empirical model. So if we do a really close reading, wherein sociopathy is like the absence of empathy or something, mm -hmm. that's kind of what it is where this, this possible belief in, in non-Euclidean geometry is like the math version of there being no rules and no morals, kind of? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Historic, as a, as a math historicist, I would say that that only really happens when she starts engaging with non-Euclidean geometry. Only because that's how I know Lewis Carroll felt about it. So his struggle to understand new ideas about math is what the book uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is actually all about. Yes. Also, he did write a book about Euclidean geometry called Euclid and His Modern Rivals. Um, well, non-Euclidean geometry is based on this question of do parallel lines intersect at a point in infinity, which is absurd. And Lewis Carroll staunchly says that. Absolutely no way. Parallel lines do not intersect at infinity. But... But do they? Well, we live on a sphere, so technically yes. <laughs> and that's where we get projective geometry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I feel like the answer was yes, they do, but they don't, but they do. Yes, but that wasn't necessarily established yet um, when he was working. Um, there was there were big debates, and then eventually it was proved, and he wasn't very happy about it, and said, well, Euclidean approximates enough, there's not much of a difference, it's not worth it, <laughs> for all these crazy little results they had to deal with. But he was also very much about making math make sense, and how math can get you to an answer that is technically right, but may not be practically right. So I was listening to a different podcast. It was the History Chicks one on Alice in Wonderland. I will put the link to it in the show notes. And they give a really interesting example in there of the kinds of things that Charles 
Dodgson, it's his hard name to say, um, would tell his students, he would be like, okay, if five people can build a wall in a year, then if you had like 10,000 people working on a wall, how quickly could they build it, like, or whatever. And they would, his students would use math and give him the right answer. And he's like, okay, but is that the right answer? Because can 10,000 people be touching this wall all at the same time? So he was very much about math isn't useful unless it's real, I guess, is was my understanding of the way that they talked about him, which I think is interesting and ties into some of the stuff that your expert brought up in her yes clip and useful because it's interesting if we were to try to genre classify alice's adventures in wonderland um it's this speculative fantasy world but it could also be a sort of science fiction it's just that charles dodgson didn't think of it that way because uh what my interview with Brittany says and there's a point where i'm like oh the concepts of non-Euclidean geometry tie really well to science fiction theories of multiverse and um, real scientific theories of like a bubble universe and, and all of those because it allows for these possibilities that feel science fictional and that might have been hard for Charles Dodgson to think about even though it was what he was getting at. So Euclidean geometry just assumed well, there's five parallel, there's five postulates of geometry, and they're all the same up until you get to the fifth one, which says that there's exactly one parallel line that's parallel to any other line. Right. And then with non-Euclidean geometries, the question is how many parallel lines? So um, with elliptic geometry, that answer is zero. With hyperbolic geometry, that number is infinite. Infinitely many lines are parallel to each other. It's so, not unique anymore. Science fiction, like multiverse theories, often invoke non-Euclidean geometry. I think so. And that makes total sense now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I want to make sure we include here is that the book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is the one that most people know, but there is a sequel called Through the Looking Glass. And what Alice found there. Yes. And I think that that may be more of what this episode is dealing with. And I think in a few minutes as we keep discussing the Alice Liddell character, it will become clear why that is particularly important and why Brittany really helped us with it. And can we also just like get real into motifs here? Yes, we should. So uh, the first Alice in Wonderland book has... A theme of cards the second or sorry motif of cards and card playing and all that but through the looking glass and what Alice found there instead of cards because you we all remember off with their heads and queen of hearts and all that kind of stuff through the looking glass and what Alice found there has a motif of chess throughout and the characters are all related to chess pieces oh warehouse 13 the people who are longtime fans are like blah the text, uh, the Through the Looking Glass text centers on Alice moving through each chess position until she becomes queen. But also, if you think about a chessboard through a looking glass, it distorts those lines again, and now you're working with um, hyperbolic lines, and, and you're getting angles that do weird things. Most of the time, angles um, will add up to 360, 
but you're not going to do that when those angles are distorted. They're going to get smaller and it's going to be less. You are going to have Sicarium Lambert quadrilaterals going all throughout this, uh, which would absolutely drive him crazy. So this is, <laughs> this is him saying everything that Alice is doing in uh, Through the Looking Glass is completely wrong mathematically, whereas that was completely questionable in uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the very first text, where she was at, where she was not taking anything that was non-Euclidean. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I really liked that because not only does it just generally tie into chess, but it ties very directly into the idea of Artie playing chess and moving the pieces with or without people's consent, which is apparent here and will become more apparent even later in the episode. But he's the one making these decisions right now. Claudia and Lena obviously feel a certain way about how they need to handle the Micah situation, and he's just taking away their options. And he's saying, well, you might feel that way, but I'm... I am the one moving these pieces. And the motif leads us to an actual theme that we struggle with throughout the episode. Uh, and, the, sorry, throughout season one of Warehouse yeah. 13. Um, so we get the dialogue that Lewis Carroll slash Charles Dodgson didn't write his books, but they're fabrications made by the warehouse. And I love that because it goes to something we discussed in 106 where we were like, trying to figure out how they know what artifacts exist and having access to, for example, the lost pages of Charles Dodgson's diary might mean that the warehouse is able to figure out that kind of thing. And we see it in this episode where Artie has theoretical artifacts in mind. Um, we learn that the mirror crossed paths with Alice Liddell right before, quotes, the murders. which we will find out about in a future episode. So that's really exciting. Yes, they do give a hint in this episode that there was a murder. They say something later about, like, yeah, it would have been nice if someone who had done whatever this thing is that they're talking about had figured that out before she escaped from the mirror and killed him. Um, But that's one murder, singular. And we're talking about a different situation in which there are multiple. Yes, and... Artie continues to insist that the image, he tells Lena, looks like Micah, but it isn't Micah, and it's trying to trick them. Yes, okay, so then we are back in Vegas in a hotel hallway um, where Jillian is really worried about Gary as they walk back to their hotel room and trying to get him to stop gambling and go to a doctor. And he says, my hand can rot off, I'm not going to any doctor, which... But just take a step back is all I'm saying. Yes. Um, and Pete and Micah appear in the hallway. And Micah says, we should take it now. And Pete goes, take what? And she goes, whatever they have. Yeah, she gives herself away a little bit because she had said she didn't see anything. And now um, she suggests that she knows they have it, which she does. And they do. Um, Gary and Jillian kind of kiss each other. And that's where they pass off the artifact. Micah clearly doesn't, I mean, whatever's not Micah, Alice, um, clearly doesn't notice the pass off of the coin. But Micah would, because this fake Micah's not smart enough, but real Micah would have definitely noticed that. Yes, this is something I want to point out for many reasons. Um, First of all, because the 
Alice, not Micah, seems enamored with the romance of them kissing, which we'll get to in a second. And I did talk to our artifact expert about this because of stories about uh, Charles Dodgson. He was friends with a lot of children. He photographed a lot of young women. And so people have questions about his character, as they should. Um, here's what Brittany had to say. Yeah, no, I, I believe he was socially awkward because he, he had a speech impairment too around adults that was not there when he was with children. But what I think she gives us that's much more illuminating than whether or not he was normal or weird is that through the looking glass and what Alice found there is about coming of age and about not just Alice, but the people around her not knowing how to respond when she hits puberty and becomes a young woman. And so if we think about hormones and growing up and romantic relationships and whatever it is that you want, that's clearly part of the Alice mythos in the second half. And we can see that a little bit here. And then of course, it's amplified by the disco ball, which projects these yearnings and cravings and all of that. So I remember the first time I saw the episode and I was like, wow, they have a perspective on Alice Liddell. <laughs> um, but I don't think that it's, it's making the argument that Dodgson was a pedophile, which some people will try to make. And I'm just not qualified to say because there's not enough information. But um, what is definitely true is that Alice grew up and was a beautiful young woman. Well, from a historical response, I think that it showcases what was going on between the two Alice books. Because in the first Alice book, Alice is a child. In the second Alice book, that question really becomes, well, becomes really, really questionable. And she even reaches full adulthood. And so I think the mirror is that point of intersection. When she goes through that mirror, that's when she is no longer a child anymore um, in the actual books. And then I think that the mirror itself is kind of that point where she's, she, she's convolved. She's both child and adult, which also has this interesting mathematical connotation too, which was of interest to Carol because um, the convolution functions, which takes part of one function and combines it with another into this thing, was a very big thing in linear algebra at the time, which is what his major, one of his major contributions were. He wrote this entire treatise on um, determinants and finding determinants. So, so I think I have two two ways of thinking about that. One is that you're talking about that that in-between state of like the chessboard being distorted and like things not making sense. Um, but there's also like possibly Victorian anxieties about womanhood or childbirth or like any, I mean, sexuality, any, any kind of Victorian anxieties. Yeah. Uh, so in that very first Alice text, is, it's pretty obvious she starts as a child, but she's progressing toward adulthood. And you even get a sense of motherhood being thrust upon her when uh, that baby transforms into that pig. Oh, it's but so weird. That's a non-Euclidean result. She throws it out. <laughs> <laughs> so she's still in the clear. She's still doing everything Lewis Carroll would be doing uh, in terms of Euclidean geometry. Yes. 
Um, I have some other things to say about that based on a little bit of the research that I did. And again, I will link the highly illuminating podcast from the History Chicks in the show notes for it. So they give an interesting perspective. And you would know more about, like, the time period than me by, like, a lot. But what I read up on said that the idea of, like, what babyhood was was, like, a much longer time. Like, if you see, like, those and something like you know those photos of like mostly naked babies dressed as flowers and you see like their cute little tush and like whatever. oh yeah it's like and it's very non-sexual it's just like a cute little baby with like their cute little baby body um that was in a lot of ways what people thought young children were up until like you know almost right before puberty so pictures he took of those children were considered very innocent and he never took any pictures without the full consent of the parents his um and alice the in the history chicks they call her little they like make a point of saying that but i'm gonna go with liddell because we're dealing with like a fictionalized version of her anyway they say that alice liddell was the middle child of the three daughters of that family and that her father was his boss at oxford college so a few things happened. They posit that one of the things that might have happened is that Alice was getting older, so the parents were like, we, we don't think it's really appropriate. It was considered really taboo for unmarried men to have relationships with unmarried women, but it was considered really wholesome for grown unmarried men to have relationships with small children, which is just so opposite of what we would think of now. Like, it would be nothing if, like, we had, like, a 40-year-old friend and we were we are just unmarried 20-somethings, you know? Like, that wouldn't cause anyone to bat an eye. But back then, that would have been the scandalous thing, and that same 40-year-old guy could have been, like, really close friends with a 7-year-old. And the other thing is, while he had his job... As a condition of his employment, he had to take a vow of chastity, and then within four years, he had to become a priest. Take his vows. That's what I was saying. Take his vows. Um, he wound up not doing it and being able to keep his job, but, like, there was just this idea of him as a very non-sexual figure that no one needed to worry about. Also, the they gave a little background on him. He was educated at home until he was, like, 12, and then he was sent off to a notoriously abusive school, about which he said... It would have been okay, except for the things that happened at night. End of quote. So, that's pretty bad. So, it's like he might have just been a little emotionally stunted. So, there are other factors. So, if anyone, like, looks up pictures, and it's like, why is he taking pictures of children and hanging out with these young girls so much? Like, those are factors that might temper your perspective. Yes, and just to validate everything Jillian has said, because I am technically the Victorianist, but you're totally right, there was this idea from the Romantics on, and Wordsworth is famous for describing in one of his poems, the idea, trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. The idea that children were pure and they were gifts from God and they were innocent. And obviously we still like to treat children as such today. Um, but that's what you're describing with his photographs. He was taking the photographs to capture this beautiful, wholesome idea of childhood, especially in the Victorian period. But it also, for someone of Alice's class, wasn't something that was always done or even often done by the parents. 
like children ate meals in their nursery until they were housebroken, which I guess doesn't mean they peed on things. It was just like, oh, you have learned like the rules of how to behave and yeah. in society. So parents, they weren't bad parents. They did what they were supposed to do, I guess. But they kept their kids at much more of a distance back then. So, and they kids had to constantly be showing their parents that they were growing up and demonstrate all those behaviors. So when they were with Lewis Carroll, who I'll call him that just because it's easier to say than his real name, when they were with him, they were running around and playing make-believe and taking pictures as these fantastical characters and... You know, that's fun. They, they were getting some of the stuff that we think now a parent does, but they weren't getting that from their parents at that time. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I have a clip of Brittany saying similar things about his psychological state, making it hard for him to have adult friendships, and also both of us saying that photography was new and cool, especially for upper-class people who could afford to just take a ton of photos. It was a fun hobby, and so it's... There were tons of people taking tons of photos of the variety that Dodgson did. And it's from a modern lens that it bothers us. And, like, clearly Jillian and I believe so strongly in protecting children and never abusing anyone. But what what we're saying is that the times color the way we view these things. And neither my expert nor en- any of the colleagues I regularly work with see it in as dangerous of a way as a non-expert might looking back yes validated where were we so basically jillian makes gary take a break and go back to the hotel room and she says okay one more round of betting and i'm cashing us out and gary agrees to that and so she takes the coin and heads back down micah doesn't see her take the coin but As she turns, Micah takes Pete, shoves him against a wall, and kisses him. And Pete is, all caps, into it. (laughs) As she's pulling away, like, he's still leaning forward with his lips puckered. It's really funny. It takes him a second to, like, figure out what has just happened. And then she's like, yeah, I was just uh, keeping him distracted, which is like such, I don't know if she's ever seen a movie or when the last time she escaped from that mirror was, but that was a very, Micah would never do that under any circumstance. And I was going to say, Pete is as like, woo, this is nice. But as soon as she pulls away and he like moves back into reality, he does look confused and it, it, he can be into it because he likes kissing and still be like, wait a second, Micah wouldn't do that. To me, oh, yeah. it's clear that he knows Micah, even if they needed to distract people, wouldn't do it, which comes around yeah. later. Like, Yeah, like, even if she was going to go the route of, like, pretending to be with him, like, she would have, like, linked an arm with him or, like, put a hand on his chest and, like, that would have been sufficient sort of thing. Um But as she does that, she takes the Farnsworth out of his pocket. They had a little banter earlier in the episode where I guess they do a coin toss every time to see one of them gets to carry the Farnsworth and the other one gets to carry the Tesla because apparently there's only one of each. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yes. Um, So she took the Farnsworth 
and he didn't notice, which is bad. Or maybe he did notice. See, that's my question, because I actually think that this is where he figures out it isn't her. Yeah, but I don't think he noticed right away that she took the Farnsworth. I think he probably noticed, like, the second she walked away. Yes. But I found that really alarming, because now he doesn't have a direct way to contact Artie. I mean, he still has his cell phone, but the whole reason they have the Farnsworth is that they're more reliable. So, yes, Micah stays with Gary in the hotel room, and Pete follows Jillian down to the casino. Um, So we go back to the warehouse where Lena is continuing to press Artie and suggest that he can't be sure, um, and they are theorizing some other possibilities for what might be happening with the mirror. And Lena explains the infinity concept, which is the homage of Micah's tattoo earlier, that, you know, when you reflect one mirror in another mirror, you get an infinity of mirrors. And what's really incredible about the disco ball being a mirror ball, don't like British people or someone else call it a mirror ball, um, (laughs) being a mirror ball and the mirror is that they've just reflected thousands of mirrors into another mirror and created this infinite infinity, um, which is exactly what... Brittany talked about that disco ball is covered with a bunch of tiny mirrors and those tiny mirrors are reflecting back into that bigger mirror. So there's a question of infinity in terms of that first mirror and a bunch of little infinities reflecting back into it. Okay, so the other part of the issue with infinity in the very late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, which really shook up the foundations of the philosophy of mathematics at the time was that not only is there not only is math infinite but that certain infinities are larger than others so if you take the numbers one two three four all the way up you can always add one to the next so that's an infinite set but if you add negative one negative two negative three and add another negative every time that infinity is bigger than that first infinity the size of those sets and that didn't go over well because that's not tangible. Does it ever really end? Mm -hmm. These were questions they were all asking toward the end of the period. And the the results were quite interesting in terms of uh, Gödel's theorem and also Cantor's theorem, which were the 1920s, 1930s. It it led to the very things uh, Lewis Carroll was very anxious about when writing the Alice texts. And this leads Lena to suggest that she thinks it's an unexpected, unprecedented artifact interaction. Which catches Artie's ear. Yes. I think he really isn't the type to be swayed by emotions ever. Yeah. So I think in that way, he and Micah are very similar. Micah can be swayed by emotions, but she is a very fact-driven person, and she's put much more at ease by this is the fact of how things work. And I think that this is an example of Artie doing the same thing. Um, so now that Artie's mind is open to the concept, he now starts thinking of other facts he's observed. And he just says, Micah pulls to the right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. It's the same thing that Pete noticed. And like Claudia's like a uh, question mark just above her head. And... Artie says, when she's mad at me, she pulls to the right. 
And I noticed it like about a week ago or something. And Claudia says, well, she's mad at you now. She's been mad at you for a little while, actually. <laughs> yes. And, like, and instead of being like, oh, yeah, that's upsetting to me, which like you and me, like, if someone we cared about was mad at us, we would be so distraught. We would. But, but he's just like, this is so helpful. Excellent. She's already mad at me. <laughs> but also, if there was something I wish I could know, it was, did someone on set realize that Joanne Kelly does that thing with her neck, and then this got written in because of that? That would just tickle me. Well, I know the answer to that question, and so do you. Do I? Yes. And we can only put in the following sentence. Eddie McClintock noticed. Oh, yes! (laughs) Wow. Listeners, uh, you gotta wait a while, but you're gonna get more information on that. We told you that we did not air all of the Eddie clips. (laughs) Anyway. Yes, and so all I have to say on the matter is I certainly believe that Eddie McClintock was doing some imitating of Joanne Kelly on set and the writers noticed. I agree and that I believe takes us to Vegas. Pete is going to investigate Jillian and he gets to finally see the artifact in action. Yes he spots her pull the chip out of her purse and run her fingers around the edge and then she places a bet And we see her see the future, but obviously Pete doesn't see what happens in her head. But now we're like, oh, that's how it works. Uh, He manages to get close to her by pretending she dropped a coin. Mm -hmm. Or not a A coin. A chip. A chip. And um, then she's like, oh, keep it. Maybe it'll change your luck. And he's like, oh, I'm hoping. And so he just sort of stays near her. And when he sees her win a boatload of cash, he goes, holy bananas. (laughs) Which I liked because we hear Pete, like, Bingo Mania being a good one, say these funny phrases, and that's just another good Pete-ism. But yeah, so I have that takes us back to Warehouse 13 office. Yes. Okay, so Artie uncovers the mirrors, and Micah is, for the first time, sitting. She's sitting on the floor of that mirrored world, cross-legged, defeated, helpless, and Artie turns on the machine And you can see in her face that she's just like, this is all terrible. Like, are you just going to yell at me some more? She just doesn't want to be here for it. And then she says, what I wrote is her version of when Pete almost died and then says, are you okay to Micah? Mm -hmm. She's facing an eternity being trapped in this awful place where no one can hear her alone, which would drive anyone bonkers. Yes. Um, And the first thing she says is, you're wasting time. Pete's in danger is so good that her concern in because what I had noted is that we get the idea from Micah throughout the end of the episode that being in that mirror world is really terrible and that like there's nothing there maybe it's like we don't know what's wrong but it's cold and dark and lonely and scary and you're definitely really trapped and he the last thing she heard Artie say was she's never getting out of there. And she knows how unreasonable Artie can be. Yes. So she was facing down the possibility of never getting out of this nothingness, horrible place. And her thought is like, save Pete, because if I'm in here, it means he's 
in danger. And they uh, have a great... It seems like it's going to go somewhere really funny. A great idea, like, we have to ask you something that only Micah would know. But it quickly turns to Micah giving her true something no one else would know. Um, heartfelt speech about how she's been dealing with these trust issues and these problems with working for Artie. And this is where we get those really great payoffs on those chess motifs that we were talking about before. Yes. Um, she starts this off by saying, and she pulls right as she says it, which mm. I noticed, like, immediately. Like, the second she starts, Artie realizes she's telling the truth, and then when he realizes she's telling the truth, he realizes he just needs to be silent and let her say it, which is, I think, really good of him. She says, we both know, but never talk about the fact that I don't trust you. And she talks about all these, all these problems, but then she says, don't treat me like I'm a chess piece that you move around on a board that only you can see. And that hits him. I think that because he and Micah are so similar in terms of how they view, like, the importance of facts, that she's gotten all the facts she's needed to get out of the way so that he can understand the emotion. There's no barrier. There's no other thing that he has to be looking at. He can just look directly at her and accept what she's feeling. Um, but then she says nice things to him, too. She says, in spite of everything, I like you, and I think you're great, and I just really want you to think the same thing of me. And throughout the whole thing, she says, I need you to see that I'm valuable, and I matter, and I'm good at this, which is so great. Like, we see this now, and it's a big deal. I don't know if you've seen Captain Marvel yet. <laughs> no, I plan to see it this week. Okay, spoiler alert for those who don't see it, but there's the whole idea that women are constantly trying to prove themselves to men and prove that they're worthy and that we don't need to because we're valid and good on our own. And it's a message that resonates in a big way even now to people seeing Captain Marvel right now. But this is something the show did like a decade before that came out. And without question... Micah never at any point needed to prove herself to Artie. She just needed Artie to stop being a jerk about things, you know? Yeah. It wasn't that she needed to prove herself to him. It was that she had proven that she's good at this, so he needs to calm down. And it's that it's that she knows her worth. She doesn't need yeah. someone to reassure her. She needs them to view her the way she knows she deserves. Yes. Yeah. Really good scene. Really well written. At the end of the scene that's really, really strong, um, Artie just goes and reaches to the mirror, and we know that she can't feel anything on the other side, and it's not about that. Um, I wrote that he does the Wrath of Khan, um, <laughs> which isn't, like, exactly, but it's close. It's like, you are in this situation right now, and even though I can't physically touch you, I want to validate that we are feeling the same thing. And he says, I screwed up. And then what I wrote about that was he finally gets it. I don't think it was until this exact moment that he understood why she got so upset at the end of the previous episode. Yes. Um, and that's where we end the warehouse scene and return to the hotel where Gary clearly hurting um, and I do think something I didn't say when we talked about his behavior 
when Jillian was walking him back to the room and he was like, my hand can rot off. I do think that what is obvious on a rewatch is that it is an addictive artifact. Oh, yeah. And so that hurt is the same way that an addict hurts hurts themselves, even if it's not on purpose, and really struggles with that. But he is packing up, and it seems that he and Jillian are planning to leave soon. And that's when Micah knocks on the door of his hotel room. And pretends to be drunk really badly. Really badly. And I think that's on purpose. Um, I don't think it's Joanne Kelly. I think it's like Alice is bad at what uh what he says never con a con artist like yeah bad at at conning um possibly i think if we take at face value the idea that alice liddell in this world had an antisocial disorder maybe she is bad at empathy and bad at acting in a way that isn't genuine or something like that because she doesn't have that kind of feeling. I don't know, and I'm not a psychologist, but it does seem actually on character that Alice in Micah's body is bad at conning. Yes. Again, this is assuming that we believe Artie's version of events, not saying that people with certain psychological disorders actually do that. Um, that was bad choice to out himself as knowing that she was up to something so early because she immediately punches him out and we end the act. (laughs) Yes, and I want to ask a question here um, because I mentioned it earlier. Obviously, Micah, like Jill said, is in her physical prime and is a trained officer and all of this. Uh, So is it that Alice in Micah's body is just like, wow, this is a powerful body. I can punch people out. Or, like, does the body have muscle memory and and the brain of Alice doesn't have Micah's memories? Like, this is all speculation because we get enough information to make the episode work, but we don't know. So I don't know Jill's thoughts on this. My thoughts are, I don't think this is related to the fight that we saw at the beginning of the episode, slash we'll see in full later. I think that... I mean, she's been in that mirror for a while. We know that she's escaped and killed other, and at least one other agent um, before being sent back into the mirror. I think, you know, Pete plays ping pong <laughs> with her. People do stuff in front of that mirror. I think she might have seen enough agents training to be like, okay, I can do this. But then also I think it's not hard for her to be like, I can punch this guy. Well, she definitely, I mean, anyone can throw a punch to an unsuspecting dude, but we do get the other fight that's really good fighting on Micah's behalf, which obviously, again, Micah can do, but can Alice do it just because she's Micah? I don't think she can do it just because she's Micah. I think having Micah's body helps, but I think we get the sense that she's very violent. Oh, that's true. You can learn fighting from training the way that Micah probably has, but also it's a basic survival technique and a basic method of violence that, you know, she's probably used on people. I didn't think of that, but yes, if she is so violent, it it helps that she's in a strong, well-trained body, but also... Um, yeah. Yes, and also as she ends that scene, there's sexy film language like, 
kind of her towering over the man and her legs, you know, legs for days, um, sexy shoes, sort of. I think she takes them off and is, like, ready to, to make her get away. Yeah, and, well, she stays in the room. Yes, she does, but... I think that she has her own plan that she's oh, tra- yeah. trying to enact from here. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And then we, we go out of the act and we come back. Oh, first of all, she does like a weird giggle. Oh, yeah. Which I hated because, it, I mean, it, I mean, I liked it, but I hated it because it was so not Micah. So we're back in Act 5 for one of my favorite scenes. Uh, we intercut between the warehouse office and Gary's hotel room. Hmm. She gets a Farnsworth call from Artie, who tells her that her parrot ran away, and Alice, I wrote, Alice Degaff, um, <laughs> and says, oh yeah, I can't remember, did you ever name that thing? And she's like, no, just like leave food out for it, I'm busy, I'll call you later. <laughs> and just hangs up, and Lena and Artie both like, look kind of smiley. Lena more than Artie. Artie looks still kind of preoccupied and upset. But Lena is like, oh, she named it. She's talking to Claudia. She's like, oh, she named the ferret. But she's just not telling Pete that she named the ferret. And Claudia's like, what? Why? (laughs) And Artie just goes, because she named it Pete. And you're like, as an audience member for a split second, you're like, wait a minute, why, why did she? And then in the mirror, because she can talk now, Micah goes, yeah because it's cute but it's so annoying and it's perfect and i love so great pete the ferret i believe on i don't know which fan page it is but on one of the warehouse wiki pages has his own wiki page pete the ferret you can look it up so that's very fun that's amazing and i just want to say i really like it because from the moment the ferret happened Micah was like, well, obviously I love this ferret now. It's my ferret. I created it and it's mine. Um, (laughs) But I think that she probably named it really early on before she figured out she was staying in the warehouse. So I think that would have been so funny. And then her takeaway is like the souvenir ferret named Pete from that one goofy time. Yeah, exactly. That's like how I saw it. Like the ferret was always going to be part of the equation, but real Pete might not have been. Oh my gosh, yes. So, they think it's a a little funny, but Artie points out that if fake Micah finds out that Pete is onto her, she will kill him. And again, Artie knowing about the Alice Liddell history is clearly the one who is concerned. Which, I have to say, I really liked, because that's the kind of thing that before... Micah said her piece to him Artie would have just been like no guys focus and just tried to get them to focus and not share the full thought like here he like went the extra step of saying we can't care about this because this whereas before he would have just said we can't care about this just do what I'm saying yeah so then that takes me back in Vegas that's what I have yep me too basically as Jillian's walking away Pete walks up to her and confronts her about What's happening? He says he definitely notices that it's an addictive artifact. And he says, we notice, like, look at what's happening to Gary's hand and to you. Like, it's a contact thing that happens with wishing objects, which is what we talked about before. And he also says, we both know that that's bad. And I think the idea is that Jillian, as someone who loves Gary, sees that what's happening to him is bad. 
But again, I think there's this double meaning with addiction and Pete is saying that he knows it's bad because he's a warehouse agent, but we as fans of the character Pete know that he knows firsthand about an addiction that can harm you. Um, So he comes to her in a very approachable way, and I think she listens to him because of the honesty that he brings to her, even though he's, like, taking this thing away. And when, you know, she does surrender the chip, because I think she does realize, like, that it is dangerous, and she loves Gary more than she loves whatever is whatever's doing that which is really important because that's something that a lot of people who have loved ones that deal with addiction struggle with is they say oh well does this person love their drug or substance more than they love me because that's a struggle for some people um so when she says okay well what are you going to do with it he holds it up and really forcefully says i'm going to put it on a shelf and ignore it forever which is like the strongest most powerful thing he can say i mean because that's literally what he's done with his own addiction is he's put the alcohol on a shelf and he's ignoring it forever and it takes so much strength to do that and it takes the strength of someone who has gone through it to know that that's the strongest answer you can give Yes, I'm so glad you pointed that out because it's obviously it has to be Pete who does this for the episode, but I think it's just really good writing the way that he does. Um, The only other thing before we end this scene um, that I have is how Jillian describes where the chip came from. She's a con artist and she, she stole it from someone who said it saved his life. And so she cites something called the Jubilee Grand Fire, which is not a real thing, but the MGM Grand Fire is. So I think that it's just the TV show being a little sensitive and not citing a real event where people died. So um, the MGM Grand Fire occurred on Friday, November 21st, 1980. And this is in a place now located in Las Vegas, and it killed more than 80 people. Um, in a casino where this artifact could be inspired from. So it's the artifact of the episode. It's not the one we focus on, but it is historical and interesting and also powerful that it got its power from someone surviving this horrible real-life event. Yes. And so Mike, I mean, Pete now has the chip and it does a little thing. And he allows him to see the future, which is scary. And I also just want to, again, point to his strength because it is something that is going to induce a addictive response from you as the way the artifact is. And, like, I thought that he thought he was going to be able to control whether or not it did something to him. I I think so, yeah. I don't think that he thought he was going to touch it and it was going to do the thing that fast. Which is really alarming for someone struggling with addiction. Like, even if you're not someone who would go to Narcotics Anonymous, if you were in Alcoholics Anonymous, they would say, I mean, don't do pot recreationally. Like, don't put yourself in a position to develop another addiction, you know? So I think that's kind of an alarming thing and that he just sort of took that in stride and immediately put it into the... A little purple goo bag. I thought that was really great. And I think the other powerful metaphor there is also just to other forms of addiction where he doesn't expect it to happen to him, 
Um, and it does. And that's a super powerful metaphor for a lot of narcotics that uh, people think they can try one time. And maybe the person, you know, a lot of times alcoholism or some addictions run in families, but a lot of addictions don't and they happen by accident because they're so addictive. So I think that there's a lot of really strong metaphorical commentary here that I just really appreciate considering how much we know about Pete. Yes. And then we cut back to the warehouse real quick and there the team is sort of like, okay, we're having trouble reaching Pete. We can't get through to his phone. Claudia goes, well, he might have figured it out. And <laughs> Micah goes, seriously? It's Pete. And I wrote, I don't think that Micah actually thinks that. I think she's just worried. I yeah. think she's like, if Pete's on his worst behavior, or if this person in my body is really... Like, really good? Yeah. Like, would he have figured it out? Because I think, I mean, she's definitely better at observation than him. So I think she's like, okay, I'm operating as if he's on his worst day. Because also, like, she knows that he really trusts her. So if something was sort of off, maybe he would excuse it because he trusts her. I don't think that he's too dumb to figure it out. And I don't think Micah thinks he's too dumb either. I think she's just worried. Yes. And meanwhile... Artie and Claudia are really worried as well and they want to get in touch but as we saw Micah not Micah took the Farnsworth and I love that it's Claudia who says well they're in a giant hotel um you know there's courtesy phones you can you can call the hotel directly and have Pete come so she suggests that they do that um, because, as we've said, she she bridges the gap between the old and the new technology. And so there's all of this amazing digital stuff Claudia can do. But also she's like, hey, you know what are cool? Telephone wires. Yes. And I just want to say before we go too far ahead that right before Pete gets a call to go to the courtesy phone, He's being very careful with his words. Like, he's controlling what he says. But something he can't control is after he's experienced the seeing the future thing, Jillian really unhelpfully goes, it lets you see the future, which Pete is still on the comm with Micah. So, or not Micah, Alice. Um, So now Alice has that information. Oh, that's important. Yes. Um, because that's even more powerful than they thought it was granting wishes. This is even more. Yeah. So then he gets the call to the courtesy phone and goes to get it. And I think at that point he must turn his comm off because Micah stops receiving information from him. I think so too. And then we go to not Micah with Gary and things are getting sadistic. She says hurting is half the fun she wants to hurt this guy and we get her turning to the mirror and i'm sorry because this is not funny but um it looks like the face swap effect on snapchat (laughs) where we get micah's face with a really creepy goobly montage of another face on her face which is perfect I'm not criticizing the special effects I actually think we want to be grossed and weirded out by this amalgamation of a person in another person's body 
she Tesla's Gary just before Pete storms into the room with all the information and stuff that he now has. And she just says, I had to use the Tesla. And Pete, knowing something is up, pretends to take Gary's pulse and pronounces him dead. And they have, like, this really good eye interaction because Gary is staring right at him. And, like, yes. and Pete is taking his pulse. And Gary's give him, giving him these eyes, like, I'm looking at you like an alive person does. <laughs> and, um... And then when when Pete says he's dead, Gary, like, and this is the actor doing a good job, really quickly is like, oh, yeah, okay, and closes his eyes, like, closes his eyes as if he's saying, oh, yeah, I can I can play along. Like, it's really good. Yeah, it's really great. And um, everything about that was good. I don't know how much of that was in the script or how much of it was directing, but good choices all around. And... <laughs> He's not really sure exactly how much of Micah is in there. (laughs) So he goes, do you think I'm an idiot? Don't answer that. Which is so great. It's perfect because that is what he would say to real Micah. And there could be some Micah in there. And you know what I, I wrote that confused me? Micah does a great job going back to Micah. But here's what I mean is that the Alice in Micah's body had been doing that creepy, higher, giggly voice with Gary. Yeah, I noted that too. When Pete is confronting her, even though she's pretty much been found out, she's trying to go back to Micah's default voice um, for this specific interaction with Pete. So I think that that's very good on Joanne Kelly's part. Yes, I completely agree. She says when she's found out... What tipped you? And Pete goes, the real Micah would never kiss me. Not if her life depended on it. Which, then he just goes, which is, like he starts to contemplate what that means. And then just is like, wait, no, not the issue at hand. (laughs) Yes. And I think that that's good because what I liked about it is that Pete is willingly insulting himself. Yes. He doesn't have the toxic male ego that's like all women must be attracted to me he just like really knows micah wouldn't kiss him yes which i think like is interesting for his masculinity not in a toxic masculinity kind of way but in a like we hear eddie mcclintock talk about having to play like the handsome dumb guy character like i mean pete obviously looks like eddie mcclintock because he's played by him like that's the kind of person who grows up you know being the 82nd sexiest man on TV. Yeah. Like, most people aren't on that list. So, <laughs> most people want to kiss him. So, I think that was just, like, a weird moment of, like, a weird good moment of just, like, she would kiss me, which is, you know, unusual. Um, most people would like to kiss me. <laughs> um, but then Alice says, that's a shame. You're a good kisser. Which I definitely want to point out right now. Because that will be really funny for a line that happens several seasons from now, and I want to state for the record that that's happening. It's the fun word. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Okay, yes. And then we get a little more information. Then we It's the same scene now that we're in that was at the very beginning, but we're getting more information. Um, And Pete says... I'm going to get the real Micah back and you're going to disappear, which is definitely what would happen in like an episode of Buffy or something like that. Like you destroy the object and then everything goes back to normal. But Alice is like, 
no, 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 no. Nothing comes out unless something goes in, which I think is such a good detail, not just for the stakes here, but for anyone who's being a butt and, you know, not suspending their disbelief and is like, but Alice Liddell, like, grew up and got married to people and, like, had a whole life. What happened? It's like, well, someone did. Oh, see, what I was thinking is that this is, and it's definitely both, this is so good for, like, math and science reasons in that, you know, laws of thermodynamics, energy cannot be created or destroyed, right? There's this mathematical tie-in to, okay, you can't just make someone go poof. You could swap these energies, but you couldn't destroy one, um... Both of those things are so awesome and yes. really good. Um, and so then we see the fight and Alice, my Alice, <laughs> says, I'm never going back in that mirror. And she Tesla's Pete and takes the chip. And Gary, for some reason, says, cash me out. And I was like, that line wasn't needed. You know, I thought the same thing. I was just, I was just, uh, what's the word for vicarious embarrassment? (laughs) I just call it secondhand embarrassment. Secondhand, yeah. I just felt embarrassed. Um, It's fine. I Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, like, actually super bad. It was just, like, I wonder, wonder why that was in there. But, you know, I also did make a note that I was, like, the stakes are less scary than they could be you know like pete knows what's going on micah's not gonna spend eternity in that mirror because they have a plan we can trust they have a plan so i think it's like oh we're gonna deflate the tension a little bit before we go to commercial but i think that's all it was i don't think that line needed to be there at all but like i sort of i sort of get it i also think that because um i have his name because niall matter is a good actor he could have he could have said that with his eyes, you know? Yeah. He could have given an exasperated look and it would have accomplished the same thing. So, yeah. It also felt very much like a comic book. Like, I think if I was reading that line in a comic book, it would have felt really good. Yes. But luckily, as you mentioned, there is a plan. And we go to the warehouse. Now, Jillian, do you know what song is playing? I didn't pay attention, but of course you do. You pay more attention to sounds than me. I'm so bad at sound. So we go to the warehouse and White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. It was Jefferson Airplane. It was just in another show I was watching, so I didn't realize that. Yes, I love that song. And it's so good. Here's the thing. I think if you don't love the show, it's a little on the nose. They're playing White Rabbit. It's from 1967, and the montage about Alice suffering is to Alice being forced to eternally suffer, I suppose. Um, But I think that the uh, tension of that song and the, the drive of that song, even if it wasn't on the nose being White Rabbit, is perfect. I think it's really good. And this montage of the plan is just excellent, in my opinion. And thematically, it's really good, too, because it's not like one of the Disney songs about Alice in Wonderland. It's a song about 
drugs and addiction using Alice as a metaphor, which, considering the artifact that's in play, I think is actually really great. And that's what I was going to say. It's really relevant because it's about... So it's about psychedelics and also what Brittany explained in the interview, how people, like my parents, uh, thought that the Disney movie was about LSD because they didn't understand that those questions of changing size and shape and everything were based on real mathematical debates of the time and not at all related to LSD or other drugs in the 19th century. Although, of course, you know, opiates and drugs existed then. That's not what the book is of. Anyway, it's also from the late 60s when we had disco in the 70s as a theme. So everything comes together really well. And we even have a clip I'll insert here where I did the episode interviews with Cameron and Brittany simultaneously, and Cameron provided an insight. If you were trying to make a connection between the 1970s disco ball and the weird Alice in Wonderland Lewis Carroll mirror, Mm -hmm. you could say that they're both trying to grapple with, like, something happening in culture at the time that's shaking up. (laughs) So, yes. We see Micah coming in to the warehouse. So we see Micah Alice, my Alice, come into the warehouse and she is using the coin to see the future. She sees herself going into the warehouse and getting a hammer. And she's like, all right, I'm going to smash this mirror. And that's the hammer I'm going to use to do it. And I'm never going to go back in and it's all going to be great. Girl, you should have run when you had the chance, because... But this is the thing, is that I think they know that she has to come back because of this um, sort of math and science uh, science fiction element that she could possibly get exchanged, and there's these warehouse agents with a lot of technological prowess that might find a way to do that remotely and the only way to be sure she doesn't get swapped back out is to destroy the medium you know especially because they say not even the agents that originally put her there knew how they did it which is really creepy and great yes like i sort of headcanon that she was so much of a danger that the artifact was created because of her, like that she needed to go into it because of her own situation. Because that's what the dialogue earlier suggested. The mirror crossed paths with Linnell right before the murders. So the idea that she was so dangerous that an object nearby absorbed that and was like, oh, what do we do? We capture it and suck it in. Um, I also think it was some really interesting choices. Like Pete probably gave some basic information about what he saw when he touched the chip to Artie. And he's like, okay, so you saw with your own eyes that this one thing was going to happen. So I think we have to make sure that she never sees us. That's interesting, yes. I think she she never sees Pete. She never sees Artie. She doesn't see Claudia and Lena, who are, like, up on the balcony with a laser thing and some binoculars until the very end. So she approaches the mirror with the hammer, and something hits her in the head, and then you realize it's Pete throwing ping pong balls at her. And she's just like, 
what? It's just like this, like she just doesn't react because it's so surreal. And it's a great callback to Pete always playing ping pong with the mirror. But it's also a great moment for Eddie McClintock because the look on his face is like, I am angrily throwing ping pong balls at you. <laughs> like, you can see it. It's really short, but I guarantee... Like, his acting's really good. Like, it's something that I feel like would be really hard to film without laughing, but he, like, really pulls <laughs> it off and, like, makes it seem, like, actually real and believable and relatable, which I think is hilarious. Yes, and this is uh, an elaborate plan where Pete gets her attention just long enough for Artie to shoot up a flare... Which causes Lena and Claudia to shoot a beam of light at the disco ball? I think it's a further adapted version of Claudia's thing that communicated with the mirror. Yeah. And whereas before, Claudia's invention allowed them to, like, project their voices in and then hear the voice coming out, like a two-way interaction. I think Yeah, that... it pulled stuff out of the thing that already projects, which yes. is the disco ball. Yeah. And, yes. it, I mean, it totally makes sense. Like, we're having difficulty explaining it with words because we're recording at 11 p.m. But, um, but it totally, like, we believe yeah. it, and visually we understand, and science fiction that is well-written is exactly this. It's like, okay, we know what's happening. Yes, and immediately, like, as it's happening, fake Micah, real Alice, can't fight it. She just screams no as she's pulled back into the mirror, and Micah gets out of the mirror and immediately hugs Pete. She's just like, oh my god, yes. And then she sees Artie, and there's, like, this moment of, okay, are you gonna hug me, or are you actually gonna kick my ass? Because earlier you said you were going to kick my ass. And she just hugs him. And it's so sweet. And you can tell all is forgiven. And everyone said what they needed to say. I think that's the important thing. Is that Micah doesn't arbitrarily forgive him. She was able to express to him her struggle. And he heard and validated and apologized. And we can tell that it's real. That his, his validation is real. His apology is real. Because he let her out of the mirror. Like, it's not a situation where he could lie and just sort of be like, okay, whatever, I'll be saying this so that you'll get over it. And so now they just go, well, what now? And Artie goes, well, now we move Alice to the dark vault. And Micah is like, what is this? Because <laughs> you, we know Micah reads the manual. She reads everything. And she's like, I haven't gotten to whatever this is. And so Micah goes like, what's the dark vault? And Pete goes... Better than the Oiga Vault, which I wrote, this is hilarious Jewish nonsense. I don't know what it means. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> okay, so you've heard me go, oi. Well, yes. Yeah, and I feel like oi is a thing that explains itself. I'm, you just, you know oi when you know oi. Sure. But the more Yiddish longer one that you say when it's really, really oi is Oiga Vault. <laughs> I just woke up my cat with how loud my laughter was. That's so funny. Right? So, hence my note. This is hilarious Jewish nonsense because it literally means nothing. Like, it's better than the Oikabal. Like, Pete. I okay. love that we we understand from our previous discussion in, I think, 106 that Claudia has picked up on Yiddish. But I love that everyone has. Yes. Because, like, I mean, you've known me forever. Like, 
juice that we get it. I <laughs> write down I write down the words you say sometimes to try to remember <laughs> them and use them again. I'm just I'm just Yeah, it's because like Yiddish honestly is such a useful language. It fills in the gaps of like I wish I had a word for that. It's like all my people have a word for that. <laughs> <laughs> um so I like like Pete and Artie get like a real belly laugh out of it together. Like Yes. The oink of a ball. <laughs> I'm gonna laugh about it all night. Right? So, um, that was good. And even Micah Micah gives like a chuckle, but she's still kinda shaken. She's like giving her sense of humor, but she's like, I was just facing eternity in a mirror, so excuse me if I don't laugh at my full strength. But you see what I had thought is that their their kind of glee about like, yay, everything's resolved, wasn't that a cool plan we had? It doesn't strike Micah the same way because the reality is that they just sent Alice. And, and I mean, she is dangerous and she's committed crimes and all of that. But like, Micah was in this bad space and she knows someone just got sent there forever. And oh, yeah. then the idea of a dark vault, that sounds scary. So you're going to be in a dark nowhere other realm and then covered up in a dark vault. It sounds bad, and I don't think Micah is as quick to accept that solution. Oh, she's definitely not. And, like, small spoiler, because we're going to talk about it later, but Micah does do her research about this, and there is a time later when she brings up this mirror, and she knows why Alice Land ended up in there in the first place. And she says it's because Artie told her. And so I think we can extrapolate based on that, that she had some difficulty dealing with this one moving Mm -hmm. forward. And so she made Artie talk to her about it so she could have a better understanding and idea. And I will say, in my defense of the situation of trapping Alice in the mirror, I don't think it's as dire for her in the mirror. I think that there's a certain ability to make things manifest in there as evidenced by the fact that when in Micah's body, Alice could look in any mirror and see, like, herself or see something else. I think that's part of why they're using the second book as inspiration, through the looking glass and what Alice found there. Mm -hmm. I think there's stuff for her in there that Micah just didn't have access to because she's so stable. She doesn't need to do those things, and her brain doesn't go to those places. That's really thoughtful, and it hadn't occurred to me. But you're right. Alice has access, possibly, to a world there because it was her artifact for her. Micah, it's not intended for her, so there's just kind of nothing. Yeah. And so Artie offers his fun fact that one of the creators of Studio 54, Stephen Rubell, considered calling his club Wonderland. I could not find a fact check to verify this. I feel like if it's in the show, it probably is a real fact. Um, But let us know if you can find a verification somewhere for us. Yeah, or it might just be something they made up because it was something that's unverifiable and Artie would know because of this. Sure, I think either way it's great. It's just a fun tie-in. But I want it to be true because yeah. it is it is a club and that would be a great name. Like, you know, Boogie Wonderland. Yeah. So then Artie says, okay, let's move the trunk in front of this mirror so it doesn't fall over again. And by we, I mean you, Pete. Because mm-hmm. I can't, like, move it with my bum arm right now. So 
Pete moves some trunk in front of the mirror and the cover falls off to reveal Alice in her true form looking terrifying. With like Um, Hitchcock violins. Yeah, and like really, really effectively though, like we all get sort of a jump scare out of it. Um, And they're like, ah! And even Micah is like, oh my god, cover it, cover it, you know? So then they cover her up real fast and... As they're walking away, Artie asks for the $10,000 back from Pete, and he goes, uh, I had to spend it on a last-minute helicopter to beat Alice here. It's gone. We've spent it. I love that, like, most fans of the show wouldn't, like, hate the episode just for not knowing how Pete got there, but this is a great detail. It's like, I had to take a helicopter to get here and beat her. I love it. Yes. And the other great detail is that there's something in TV called time compression. Everything is time compressed in any form of filmic medium where, you know, if something happens in two weeks, you have to figure out a way to communicate that it's been two weeks in, like, a five-minute period of time. Um, And so it's really nice when you get to a situation where you don't have to use that time compression. So they don't. Like, another show would have had... Claudia and Lena arriving like really shortly after like everything had gone down but this happened sort of in real time like the warehouse is a really big place Lena and Claudia are up on the balcony pretty far away so they don't show up until right at the end and they're like did it work did it work we don't have a way to know if it worked (laughs) Um, and then they go like look who's here and they see Micah and then they run to her and hug her and it's just this great moment of Allowing real time to give us sort of these rolling payoffs. Yes. And then, you know what I didn't hear until, like, time number four watching the episode, (laughs) is that um, Micah is back, and as it's fading out, Pete just kind of says, you said I was a good kisser. And she's like, what? (laughs) And then you just cut to black, which is excellent. It's so good. I love it. It's just... A great episode, and Alice is so creepy and cool, and positive, positive things. Yeah, and it's such a really cool, unexpectedly important episode for the series moving forward. It sets so much up. Yes. That's all for us this time. We'll see you next week, agents. All right, so that was such a long, fun two-parter We really rely on and appreciate your help to make this podcast run. So even a dollar, even a one-time donation, all of that is welcome. Visit our Patreon to learn more about our tiers and rewards. You can check it out on our website at warehouse13pod.com. That's warehouse13pod.com. Goodbye.